Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris Sage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we are absolutely honored. We have the host of Econ Talk, Russ Roberts, which happens to be uh, one of Ed and my favorite podcasts. Welcome, Russ Roberts, to the Soul of Enterprise. Great to be here. Uh, b- big fans, Russ. Uh, I, you know your your resume, of course, is incredibly impressive. You earned your PhD at the University of Chicago, and I'm fascinated by some of the professors. I think you studied under Sam Peltzman. I think I heard you say, and maybe some others. Stigler, Friedman. Uh, st- my my PhD committee was Gary Becker was the chair. Um, George Stigler was on it with Sherwin Rosen, but I had classes and worked with Sam Peltzman and many, many others, incredible economists there when I was there. It was a wonderful experience. I bet. I bet. And of course, Econ Talk is just classic. It's such a great show. I, I think it's the only show where Ed and I have literally told our listeners to stop listening to our show and go listen to yours. <laughs> That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. It's uh, we listen to it every week, Ed and I, and end up talking about it and end up taking notes. And you just, you know, you do such a great job on that show, and I've learned so much. Um, and also want to thank you for getting into the in the book, the in the first circle. Oh, cool! But, yeah, uh, I'm reading it. Ed's reading it. Uh, we can't wait to see how you uh, unfold that. Yeah, well, we <clears throat> we've done. Uh a background episode with Kevin McKenna, Russian literature professor from the University of Vermont, and we're going to do a second episode, a bonus uh, episode of Econ Talk on the book itself, and we might do one more after that. We've also got a Reddit page um, on different aspects of the book for people to comment and respond to. It's an incredible, it's by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and it's, um, what turns out, one of my favorite novels of all time. Yeah, it's it's just awesome. I think I'm on chapter 68 or something, and it's just there's so <laughs> the much chapters going are short. on. Just they they are they are because there's 90 something of them, I think. But uh, yeah, just a great book, and I kind of want to focus on your books, Russ, because I've read them all. Um, I'm I've been a massive fan for a long time, and you wrote three economic novels, which I always find very uh, just a great entertaining way to not only teach economics, but also to learn it. Uh, what got you into the idea of writing economic novels? Well, you know, I'd seen a once long time ago, well, this must have been, uh, I think it was the early 90s, I saw a frontline documentary on U.S. trade which, with Japan, which at the time was who everyone was afraid of, and it turned out there was not much to be afraid of there, for most Americans at least, and Japan since then has struggled quite a bit economically, but at the time, everyone was worried about Japanese economic might and how they were going to dominate the United States, and they were going to keep all the good jobs for the Japanese, and we were going to get all the crummy jobs. And uh, Frontline had a documentary showing this or claiming to show this, and at the end, uh, they said, uh, the United States won the Iraq War. This was the first Iraq War. Why can't we win the trade war? And I remember watching that. And of course, as an economist, I believe that trade is not a war. Trade is actually the way that people across national borders cooperate with each other, buying things they 
can only make for themselves at a greater expense and then doing the same for the other country, providing products that are too expensive for them to provide relative to how we can provide them. And so I thought, you know, this is a terrible analogy to because in actual war, there's destruction, <laughs> there's sure. death, uh, and most importantly, there's a winner and a loser, although both sides lose, of course, to some extent. But in trade, typically both sides win. Both sides are better off. That's why they voluntarily trade with each other, the two partners who trade. So I saw this ending, and I thought, that's horrible economics. But I noticed that I still got goosebumps from the swelling of the music and the uh, the way that I felt in response to that rhetorical question. And I realized that it would be really useful if we had a case for trade that had an emotional payoff and not just an intellectual payoff. And so I decided at the time, I first said, I'm going to make a movie, which is not a particularly good idea, but I you know, did that for, worked on that for a little bit. And then I realized I'm not very good at making movies. It's <laughs> ironic because that's one of the lessons of trade. You shouldn't try to do everything. You need, you want to outsource some stuff for other people to do for you. And I decided instead to write a, a book. So my first book, The Choice, A Fable of Free Trade and Protectionism, I imagined a, a dialogue between the 19th century economist David Ricardo and an American uh, business leader of the 1950s and 60s who was worried about Japanese competition. And I realized that that fictional narrative allowed me to look at the non-monetary side of trade, which was my goal. I wanted to show that it wasn't just about money, it was about people's lives, and that sometimes trade made people's lives a lot harder, but probably more often than, than not, it made people's lives more rewarding and more, not just monetarily, but more satisfying and, and capture the opportunity for human beings to flourish. And so that, that's, that's, that's how I got interested in the idea of writing a novel to capture some of the non monetary parts of economics you can call them the emotional side or the inspiring side i think there are a lot of things that are inspiring about international trade other than the say national trade accounts which are pretty dull and boring <laughs> well i loved how you brought ricardo back and I, I just thought that was so innovative the only other novel i've read that's kind of similar to that was i think uh, saving adam smith by jonathan wright i think yep. He, he, that academic novel genre is really fascinating to me. But one of the things that you point out in that book, The Choice, um, is that a re in a restaurant, uh, if a foreign tourist is here and eats a meal in one of our restaurants, it's the same as shipping food abroad. And, Tour and tourism is a form of trade. We don't think about it, but yeah. Yeah. And, and our universities are an excellent export. Why do you think there's a manufacturing fetish, Russ? Because, I mean, our manufacturing sector is at its apogee in terms of output, some $2 trillion I just read, which makes it the ninth largest economy in the world. And yet we feel like we don't produce anything anymore. What? Why Is this a materialist fallacy? Uh, oh, first, by the way, Saving Anna Smith was by Jonathan White, W-I-G-H-T. White, yes. I just want to correct, correct, correct that. Correct. So. There is, a, I think we fetishize a cup, a bunch of stuff um, for, I don't know why, but for a variety of reasons, perhaps, I mean, and I'll be the same reason, but, you know, one thing we definitely, I would say, romanticize is uh, farming. Uh, most farmers in the United States, uh, at least in terms of output, in terms of their importance to the total amount of food we produce, are large corporations, but we somehow think of a uh, uh, a person in overalls with a hoe or a, a pair of oxen carrying a plow across a field. And 
that's a primitive human primeval urge to grow food and take care of ourselves. So it's very easy for agricultural corporate giants to play into that, pull on our heartstrings and get subsidies to their activities that really are not, I don't think, a very good idea. Manufacturing, similarly, as you point out, there's a certain romance about it because it's we're making stuff. Uh, somehow we're getting stuff done. And it's natural to, uh, my favorite example on the other side would be something like Federal Express. Federal Express doesn't make a thing. All it does is move packages around. It's a service business, and it's a particularly important service business because what it actually does, which is literally impossible, but what it manages to do is it makes the world smaller. So when they introduced overnight delivery, uh, that was extraordinary. We totally take it for granted now, but I'm old enough to remember when it was a novelty. And what it meant was I was closer to you than I otherwise would be because I could get a package to you overnight instead of the three to five days it may have taken before. That's an extraordinary human achievement. It's totally underappreciated. It was underappreciated at the time how that could be done profitably. It's easy to do it overnight if you don't care about the expense. The challenge was to do it in a way that a lot of people would find it worth doing at a reasonable price, and they did. And that's that took ingenuity. It took incredible command of you know what's called logistics and the the way that packages are stored, moved, you know, pushed pushed around, loaded onto planes, taken off planes, then delivered. That's not making anything. That all it is is rearranging the packages. But the contribution to human well-being was quite significant, especially we needed to get something to somewhere for a deadline or something crucial like a, a medical device to someone. So that's not as romantic as a steel furnace. And it's harder to see what it actually does. What it really does is it allows, say, a last-minute operation to take place. Otherwise, wouldn't happen. But it's not as – you can't take a picture of that. You can take a movie. You can take a movie of the package moving from the manufacturer's place to the final recipient, to the end recipient. But that's hard to see. Whereas the steel foundry, the person making steel out of um, – out of iron is, is you know, dramatic, and, and it goes back to our nostalgia for an earlier time. We forget that in that earlier time, say the early part of the 20th century, late part of the 19th century, life expectancy was a lot shorter, and there were a lot of there was horrible discrimination, and there, there was a lot of negative things. Our memories of we've forgotten many of those things when we see the steel furnace because we think, oh, yeah, that's when people were stronger and our country was stronger and it's just an illusion um as you point out we make a lot more stuff than we did 50 and 25 years ago and certainly a lot more than 100 years ago but we do with fewer people and that's a reality that is the result of the fact that we're a lot more productive we don't need as many people to produce the stuff that we do still produce having said that uh, for people who have uh great manual labor skills who used to work in physically demanding jobs like manufacturing, those jobs have mainly been replaced by robots. The people who work in those factories don't have the same skill sets as they did 25 and 50 years ago. And people are rightfully concerned about what the people who used to work in those steel factories will do now. And so I I think there's a complicated interaction between the way we perceive different parts of the economy like manufacturing versus services coupled with the fear we have that certain parts of our workforce are going to struggle to find opportunity. And I think that's a legitimate worry. 
I don't want to preserve the manufacturing sector in amber the way it was in, say, 1950 or 1975 in order to maintain those jobs. But we do have to think about the role that public policy plays in keeping people prepared for new kinds of jobs. When you have a mediocre school system, K through 12, you certainly are not serving the people well who are struggling to find opportunity, who are mainly relying on their physical labor and now need to find something else. So there's some real issues there, but a lot of it, I do think, is is an illusion. Right. It, it, you know, if economics has taught me anything. It's taught me that you can't measure a sector by its inputs. You have to kind of look at the outputs. And if we can produce more with less people, then that's probably an overall good thing, even though it, it does admittedly cause harm. But the other thing, and I think your FedEx example is excellent because this line between service and manufacturing, I've always thought that was kind of a false distinction because take a company like Toyota or GM, I mean, they might make and sell 9 million cars a year, but try and do that without services, try and do that without warranties, try and do it without financing, dealer networks, and all the other services that we don't see. We kind of glamorize the car, but all yep. the other boring things are <laughs> are essential to selling those Absolutely. cars as well. And producing them. When we think of the car, you know, you think of a, we have this again, a, a romance about a, a man with a hammer pounding out steel <laughs> for him in a car. Well, I just know what happens. And in fact, you know, those industries which used to employ hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people at their peak employ a fraction as manufacturers and probably employ a lot more people in those services that support the manufacturing. I haven't looked at those numbers. That would be interesting to compare them. Russ, I, we've only got like a half a minute, but I just want to ask you really quick since we're on this topic. Uh, we had Donald Bedreau on and, and we asked him, do you think we should do away with the trade deficit statistics? And he hmm. said, yes. What What would you say? Well, it's a terrible thing that data gets misused. Uh, it's unclear. Most economists love data because it allows us to produce research and studies of how the world works. But sometimes those are misleading and politicians often use those data in ways that are very, very deceptive, which is that's the downside. And uh, I do worry about it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I'd rather be approximately right rather than precisely <laughs> wrong. But, uh, well, Russ, this is fantastic, and we're up against our break. And, folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to send Ed or myself an email, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? 
I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Solemn Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Russ Roberts. Russ, um, I am a, a big fan, as, as uh, Ron said, of, of your, ta- your podcast, Econ Talk. I've been listening, I think, to every episode for about the last two years and occasionally go back and listen to some of the older ones. And uh, one of the, 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 the best episodes from my perspective in the last, I guess, year was, was when you had Bill James on, the father hmm. of Sabermetrics. Uh, and it was pretty clear to me that you're you're more than just a the casual baseball fan. Um, and I wanted to ask you about something else that you you talk about in relation to that. There's a a, a famous uh, thing that happened in 2001. Or Armando Galarraga and his almost perfect game. I don't know if you recall yeah, that. I do that incident. That. It's yep. an umpiring error, if I remember. That is absolutely correct. And it, and and the last play of the game. Uh, there was a, a ground ball to first base, a, a short toss over to the pitcher, Galarraga, who is covering. And clearly the guy was out, would have been the 27th out for a perfect game. But the umpire, whose name is um, the wonderfully literatured Jim Joyce, not James Joyce, but Jim Joyce, uh, made, blew the call and admitted to blowing the call. And the next day he was the home plate umpire and, 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 uh, Jim Leland, in his wisdom, sent up Galarraga with the lineup card, and there's this wonderful moment with Jim Jim Joyce weeping, taking the lineup card from this guy who pitched the almost perfect game, and it's cited as a major contributing factor in in instant replay in use in baseball right now. And of course, the most cited reason for that is that is just too much money at stake. So, it's in fact, it's an economic reason. And I was just wondering if you feel as I do that instant replay is in when that's great, but in a way it's it's robbing us of our humanity in the name of economics, and that we will never have that opportunity to have this Jim Joyce Armando Galarraga moment again. I guess I have a, a number of thoughts about that, and I, I haven't thought much about it, so some of these mm-hmm. are you know are off the cuff. But I have thought a little bit about instant replay. Now, instant replay reminds me a little bit about what it's like to grade exams. Uh, as, a, as a former teacher in the classroom for 30-something years, uh, students always found it frustrating, as did I, that grading is imperfect. Uh, so students would often come to me with complaints, and I had a formal process for complaints, particularly for mistakes. Uh, if I misadded, you know, the scores, when I handed back the test, the first thing I said was add up your scores right now. If there's an arithmetic error, I want to fix it. So that was the first thing. But let's say you thought 
an answer you gave was very similar to what I said was, quote, the right answer, and the, it was worth 10 points, and I gave you, a, say, a 5, but you deserved a 9 or a 10. And I said, you're welcome to contest that. If you do, I will regrade your entire exam, though, because there are possible questions where I gave you more points than you deserve. But <laughs> I know that people aren't going to come back and complain about those. Those are going to mostly, they're going to just, I don't think I've ever had a complaint about that. Um, but So... There are other people who say, you know, life's unfair. I'm just not going to even bother with this. I'll just accept my grade. I don't know if it's right or not, but I'm not going to worry about it. And so the people who do complain tend to be, on average, not necessarily the mistakes. Some of them are mistakes. Very it turned out to be quite unusual, though occasionally I corrected an exam from a, from a grade. And I graded my own exams, by the way. I didn't have it almost always. I didn't have, very often have a teaching assistant grade them. And so I get that. I get the human urge we have for justice and in the case of the homework or the exam it's pretty clear that that urge for justice is colored by your own self-interest so i understood that the average the typical person who came to me with a grading complaint may not have been exactly right they actually just wanted more points i had a friend of mine used to say when people would come in complaining about their overall grade in a class let's say they got a c and they'd say uh, you know i'm very disappointed in my grade And, and the professor would say well what grade would you want well I, well, I was hoping for a better grade. And the teacher said, well, how about an A? How about an A plus? And the student said, well, no, no, I, you know, I, I don't deserve an A plus. I want the grade I deserve. He said, well, the grade you deserve is a C. <laughs> I understand you want a higher grade. That's a natural human impulse, but that's not the grade you earned. You earned a C. Uh, unless I made, you know, an error, adding error or misgraded the thing, but just the fact that you are sad about your grade. So the replay story is not quite like that, but it has a similar aspect. The idea that a tr- that a call gets missed, and of course, in the course of a season, a game, calls get missed all the time. Strikes gets ca- get called balls, balls get called strikes. And I don't want to romanticize the human element, which a lot of people say is important. What I do want to attack, though, is this idea that, that we can solve the problem of uh, – injustice by just doing a replay. And we've seen over the years that there's an incredible, first, it, it slows down the pace of the game tremendously, which I think is is damaging. But more importantly, many times, it's just not resolvable, no matter how many camera angles you have. And, and oftentimes, of course, the referees or umpires are, are shown to be correct, which is shocking, given the speed at which these take place. Some of it's just luck, of course, but it's, it's an art to making those kind of calls. And of course, most of them are made correctly. But I think there's a, a strange, again, human desire we have for perfection. And, and it, to me, it's, it's an economic problem in a different way. A lot of people's attitude is, I don't care what it costs. We've got to get it right. So it doesn't matter what the expense is, no matter how long it takes to review the play, no matter how big a delay it is, the most important thing is to get it right. And I'd say, not really. Actually, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to have a great game a game that we love, a game that produces enjoyment, a game that produces uh, a a way to make a living for talented athletes. And often these replay uh, decisions take so long, they take away from the enjoyment of the game and actually can harm the players effectively in the sense that it ends up reducing the demand for people to follow the sport. So I I don't don't have any trouble with line calls in uh, tennis being done electronically if they get it right every time. I, I think they, I suspect they do or they're very close to right every time. But actual replay reviewed by people 
it's just not as foolproof as people like to imagine it is. And so we end up with situations where uh, grievances just persist. And I guess the other thing I would just add to this is that you know, there's so many unfairnesses in life. Uh, the way you were brought up, the parents you were endowed with who weren't your, your choice, but you were just given a gift or punished by, you know, both genetically and culturally. There's so many unfair things, and, and we focus on the things that we could see. Like, that was a bad call. Uh, or, to take a wider example, uh, steroid use. That's obviously cheating. Well, for parts of Major League Baseball history, it really was accepted. It wasn't enforced, that rule. And so we have this outrage because we can test for it. And, of course, some people could hide from the test and did successfully for many years. Other people have other, quote, unfair advantages. So we tend to focus on the things you can see and observe and test, and we miss the other things. And I try as a human being, it's hard, I'm not very good at it, but I try to be aware of the fact that there are many things in life that I enjoy that I did not earn. And uh, there's many things that are hard on my in my life that I don't deserve either. And I try to deal with both of those. And uh, I think that's part of growing up. And I think when we're kids, children, we have a huge sense of injustice over those, quote, unfairnesses. And as an adult, I think we realize that we should realize that they kind of even out over time. And if they don't even out, they often even out in your favor. I mean, we're, I was born in the United States. I got an enormous advantage in 1954 that I was born in the United States and not in, say, Cambodia or uh, a some poor country in, in Latin America or Africa, you know, forget the war possibilities that would have come to me if I'd been in, in Southeast Asia. But it's it just, um, it just a, so many things in life are unfair. Yeah, we have That's a, a long rambling right answer. I'm sorry, it's not quite what you're. No, looking. no, no, it's not. It's a great, it's a great answer, and I appreciate that. We have a a listener who who uh, who who hates when we talk baseball, but he loves you as well, and he's going <laughs> to love your answer because you didn't talk about the baseball aspect of it. <laughs> so, uh, by, you, the but, way, uh, by the way, can I add one baseball yeah, 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 that sure. story? Because one thing yep. I didn't say is that I think it's bizarre that that isn't called a perfect game. So the way I would solve the injustice there is I would call that a perfect game. I would list it in the uh, annals of, of perfect games. You put an asterisk next to it if you want. Say it, sure. it wasn't uh, – he didn't really get uh, 27 outs in a row. He just pitched well enough to get 27 outs in a row. Oh, by the way, how many great perfect games are there where a player made an extraordinary fielding play, saving mm-hmm. the perfect game? We don't say, well, well that's not fair. <laughs> if he had a different right fielder, he wouldn't have caught the ball. So that's not really a perfect game. So there's just it's just good to keep all that in mind, I think. Yeah. There, well, there's actually one and I, that I remember reading about as a kid. It happened in the in the 19 teens, and Babe Ruth was a part of it. Babe, Babe Ruth get, was a pitcher at the time, and he hit the first batter that he faced on purpose. Mm-hmm. Right, and the, the 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 new pitcher came in, picks the guy off at first, and then proceeds to retire the next 26 guys. Yeah, that should be that. Well, we know the story. Of course, you've forgotten right. saying that's awkward. But the the, the other uh, the other point I want to make is that although I, I said that I don't want replay to keep that from happening for for a bunch of reasons, your reason, which was the human poignancy of the confrontation between the umpire and the pitcher the next day. And the opportunity for forgiveness is a beautiful thing. I don't think you should. We should encourage people to be damaged so they can forgive other people or harm. Right. But it, that that again is also part of the human enterprise. 
And and th- thanks. Along those lines, and we do have about two minutes for this answer, one, one of the guests that we've had on a couple of times is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And I've heard you refer to yourself as a, as a, a, um, a religious Jew on your on your show. Uh, on our show, is called The Soul of Enterprise because we, Ron and I, both believe that, that business has a spiritual component to it. But one of the things that Rabbi Lappin said, and I'd like to get your take on this, is he's an Orthodox Jew, by the way, and he yep. says that he would have an ethical problem Riding in a dry, uh, autonomous vehicle, <laughs> and wow. we need to a- ask him further because he says because no human intervention would be allowed. There would be no human part of the de- decision making if some accident were to occur. Hmm. And and yes, I, I, I just totally I, disagree with that. And again, I'm an Orthodox Jew as well. I don't, I don't know what he has in mind on the ethics, uh, but you know, for me, the ethics in theory. Autonomous cars, and maybe there's something I don't understand about his comments. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Yes, sure, sure. But if we just think about autonomous cars more generally, uh, we don't know if they're going to fulfill the promise that they claim. The promise that they claim is that we will be able to coordinate traffic and eliminate accidents. And that may be a bridge too far for human uh, creativity, but we'll see. If that does happen, I think that's a glorious thing. It means, again, the world's smaller because we'll be able to get from point A to point B quicker. While I'm getting there, I can read and not have to watch the road or do whatever I want. I can meditate or uh, think deep thoughts or shallow ones. That would be lovely. And and finally, uh, tens of thousands of lives would be saved potentially because there wouldn't be car accidents and there'd be lower costs and street of producing a car because they wouldn't have to use this heavy uh materials to make it to prevent deaths from accidents and streets would get different sized because you wouldn't have to worry about all kinds of other things so i love the idea of autonomous cars we'll see if they happen but i don't see that as an ethical issue myself i I don't know what he had in mind yeah, we'll have to ask him for clarification next time he's on. But we're up against our next break. want to remind you, you can get a hold of Ron or me. The email address is asktsoe at verisage.com. The website, thesoulofenterprise.com, where we have show notes as well as archives for all of our previous shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. 
Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Russ Roberts, the host of Econ Talk. And Russ, just uh, to finish up the thought from Ed about Rabbi Lappin, I think from his podcast, his ethical problem with the autonomous car is the programmers have to decide, you know, the classic trolleyology problem. Do you, you know, do you kill the one person or do you kill the five? And because there's no human judgment at the time of that decision, that's his that's his moral and ethical problem with an autonomous car and why he says he wouldn't buy one let alone be in one so that's an interesting point and and there is a imperfection about a driverless car i think in that it has to often it has to make sometimes a decision just as we human beings do and i would argue that when we make those decisions as humans so you know god forbid uh a, a kid on a, on a bike cuts in front of you in the car and you swerve to the left and have an accident with the car in the other lane you know i wouldn't call that much of a decision it is a it's done by human beings it's an impulsive thing though and i think again one of the advantages of a driverless car is that in theory that could be avoided entirely or most of the time and you'd have to set that ethical value against other ethical issues of trade-offs that the algorithm would make but the thing i as an economist the point i would make is that if everyone knows the algorithms that driverless cars make, I think it's going to make us somewhat behave somewhat differently, potentially in dangerous situations. Now, I'll just quickly say, when I'm out in California in the summer, I'm much more comfortable walking into a intersection than when I'm back in the Maryland, Maryland, suburban Maryland, Washington D.C., because most drivers in California are expecting to look out for. Uh, pedestrians and pedestrians very much have the right of way. That may be the law, the legislation in Washington D.C. and Maryland, but it's not the law. It's not how people actually behave. And so, when I'm in Maryland, I'm more careful as a pedestrian, and when I'm in California, I'm more careful as a driver. So, I think the part about driverless cars we don't fully appreciate are the expectations they'll create and how people will change their behavior as cyclists, pedestrians, and so on. Right. Right. Good point. Um, Back to your novels, you wrote three of them. We talked about the choice where you brought David Ricardo back. I want to ask you something that was in The Invisible Heart, which isn't uh, subtitled as An Economic Romance, which which I thought was a great book. Um, you, you make the point Thank in you. here that what if the government, talking about discrimination, and you know nobody likes the idea of landlords discriminating or businesses discriminating, but you made the point, and this is what I love about economics and economists, because they always look at both sides of a transaction. You made the point that what if the government forced you to spend 15% of your money with minority-owned businesses or 50% of your money with women-owned businesses, and you had to prove it to them that you did that? 
we wouldn't stand that for that for you know for one minute. Why is it that we only focus on one side of the transaction that the employer can't discriminate, but the customer can? Yeah, that's an interesting. Um, I think again, an emotional issue. We think very differently about the rights of corporations, and correctly so. By the way, I don't want to overstate that. Uh, but we think very differently about corporations' rights versus individual rights. I, I'm afraid I'd, I disagree with you a little bit. I, I think a lot of people would be happy to be required to spend a certain amount on certain types of groups. One of the problems, of course, is that okay. that it would probably create a lot of false uh, corporations that would look like they were owned by minorities or women. That, and that's what's happened, unfortunately, with some of the federal requirements on contracting and so on. It creates an enormous behind-the-scenes set of of not so productive uh, uh, machinations that don't always help the groups that we're trying to help. But, you know, I think it's a tough issue. I don't want to, I don't want to overstate how easy it is to say everyone should have the right to spend their money the way they see fit or free to hire whoever they want or free to rent to whomever they want. Or um, so I, I think if we look at the last 50 years of American history, we've, we've restricted people's rights quite a bit and forced them to, uh, observe certain non-discriminatory things. Is that been a good thing or a bad thing? Overwhelmingly, most people think it's a good thing. I think the damage of it is, is it, it does reduce the non-governmental ways we try to make the world a better place. And by that, I mean the, the role that religion or ethics or preaching generally does to encourage people to behave well. When we force people to behave well, we don't necessarily transform them. We do help the people that that get the benefits uh, as as employees, though, and that, that I think most people see as a plus. But I prefer a world where people were motivated to actually be better people. Now, that's a little naive, perhaps. I think it, maybe it's too hard to get there from here. But I also worry about when you, when you empower the government to have the job of making people better. Uh, sometimes what they think politicians think is better may not be what we as the uh, body politic thinks is better. So we tend to focus on the ones we like. Oh yeah, that was good because that helped these groups. Uh, we wouldn't feel that way about most of the, much of human history and, and the way the governments when they're tyrannical have imposed their will. So I kind of like the idea, not kind of, I like the idea of, of saying I want to decentralize that the different ways we improve people's lives who struggle rather than codify them in the formal ways that government can force people to do stuff. Sure. Because I don't trust government. I don't trust that process. And I know that when power gets concentrated, it tends to get abused. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe people wouldn't have a problem being held accountable to spend their money. Maybe we shouldn't give them any ideas. But yeah. one thing I have learned from like Gary Becker and Thomas Sowell is that the market does impose a cost on people who discriminate. It does, but it doesn't solve the problem automatically. Competition matters a lot, right? The fact that if I'm, let's say I, I have a discriminatory, I'm, I'm a let's take a biased employer, doesn't want to hire people of a certain color, so people of a certain religion, whatever it is. And, um, well, because of competition, they're going to have a disadvantage in the marketplace. And what Becker observed is that, well, but if a lot of people have that 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 bias or that prejudice, as that one employer does, then competition is not going to help so much. So the market, there's a cost to discrimination, but but really bad people are eager to pay that price in order to harm or not associate with people they don't like. So it's 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 not a automatic fix. Uh, market forces a competition, but it does help. Right, right. 
your other book, it, which is The Price of Everything, A Parable of Possibility and Prosperity, another one that I just love because you, you take on the gouging issue so well, especially after like a natural disaster, or hurricane, and people get all upset that the price of generators, hotel rooms, gas, water, all that doubles, triples, and now there's even laws against it in some states. But since we we're talking about ethics earlier, Russ, why is it that, you know, the, the truck driver who gets up in Ohio to work overtime to drive to bring needed supplies, albeit at a price that's three times normal, three times the normal, why why is that penalized? But the guy sitting there watching Ohio State, you know, and drinking beer and, and doesn't do a, a thing, it, we nail the gougers, but they're actually helping people in, in the moment of crisis. Yeah, it's hard to see that. Uh, so I understand why people get upset about it. Uh, and, and I'd love to live in a world where everybody would get off the couch and go help drive supplies to places where they're needed. But we also have our own lives, and it's hard to figure out what the right thing to do is. I don't want to make my family suffer too much to go help people in another state with a natural disaster. I might make them suffer a little bit. I might miss their dad for, for a day if I could do something glorious to help people under great suffering and tragedy. But I think there's just a tendency to forget that if we don't let prices rise, there's not as much stuff going. And again, you can wish, oh, I wish the world didn't work that way. I wish people would deliver the stuff at the same price they paid before. I wish they'd go to all the extra effort to get the extra water to the to the location where the hurricane or the tornado is. But they don't. In a different world, maybe they would. In a different kind of culture or society, maybe they would. But they don't. So in that case, the higher prices serve the important and life-saving function often of signaling where stuff is needed and encouraging people to go do it. We're very uncomfortable sometimes with rewarding people and we don't let people buy and sell uh, organs and you can make some ethical arguments in favor of that that legislation. But I would argue that as a result, one of the results is that there are fewer organs available to people who, who desperately need them. And strangely enough, we have no problem letting the surgeon who puts the organ in charge an enormous amount, make an enormous salary, and I think that's good, but that we don't bother with. That doesn't offend us. But the poor person who wants to sell a kidney, we don't like that, partly because we think, oh, I don't want them to have to be encouraged to sell a kidney because they're poor. So instead, they stay poor, and the person who didn't get the kidney dies. Nice. So that's an ethical issue, too. So I'm not saying it's black and white. It's open and shut, but it's for me, it's close. <laughs> and, and I just think that often we talk about these issues and we forget the complexity of them. Right, right. And Iran is it, it is one country where it is legal to sell organs. Yep. And they say ironically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean ironically. Sorry. <laughs> I say ironically because a lot of people think it's a you know, it's a it's something of a very restrictive state and presumably they're not very capitalist, but in this particular area they're they're a little bit capitalist. Sure, sure. And your latest book, Russ, which is also another great one, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. I just think it's really good because you focus a lot on his theory of moral sentiments. And, you know, he's got that experiment about the Chinese earthquake, I think it is. And when I taught ethics, I used to use the I used to update that example for 9-11 and ask the class, how many of you would be willing to lose your finger if we could turn back the clock to, you know, erase 9-11? And the overwhelming majority of people raise their hands. Now, you could say, well, that's what they say, but is that what they would do? And I get that. But it does illustrate, um, you know, Smith's point uh, that, you know, people don't want to just be loved. They want to be lovely, as you always say. Yep. And 
I, I just find that, but he's tagged with being for greed and self-interest and, and all of that, but that's not what he thought at all. He didn't like greedy people. No, and he didn't like people who were obsessed with making money. He understood that that could be a very corrosive part uh, to the human soul. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that your podcast is the soul of enterprise, and I think business can be soulful, as any aspect of our life can be. Uh, I don't think it's, I think, you know, the conjunction of business and soulfulness is is fun because it's not what people normally think of as business but i think if you're a soulful person if you're an ethical person you should be ethical in all of your life and adam smith certainly felt that all aspects of your life and adam smith certainly felt that he uh he was interested in self-interest he took it as a given that we're self-interested he didn't like the idea that we're all selfish he didn't think that was the case at all uh and certainly you said well people maybe they only just said that about their little finger because they could it was just a uh, hypothetical but going back to what we just talked about, people give away their kidneys to save yeah. one life. Uh, right. uh, giving away your kidney is a lot harder than losing your little finger. Uh, mm-hmm. So people will do extraordinary things uh, for other people. The, the willingness to do that's limited. Uh, Smith understood that too. Smith is a, the ultimate realist. He understood that people are complicated. They're motivated by their own self self-interestedness, but they also want to help other people partly because they want to be seen as decent human beings and they know that that matters and they know deep down, we all know deep down, that we are not each of us the center of the universe. We're small compared to the rest of the world. And if we put ourselves first, we um, we commit a, an, a, an ethical failing. We've committed an ethical failing. We, we're no better than anyone else in, in the ethical scale of things typically. So I think that's Smith's, one of Smith's great insights. Yeah, totally agree. Well, well, I could go on talking to you about that book for a long time, but unfortunately, we're at a break. And folks, I want to remind you, we will have all of Russ's books linked up on thesoulofenterprise.com, along with his website and EconTalk's website, where you can find out more about his work. And we would certainly recommend highly his podcast, EconTalk, which is weekly, comes out every Monday. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? 
I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And back on the Soul of Enterprise with our guest, Russ Roberts, the host of Ron and my favorite podcast, even above ours, the the Econ Talk. Uh, Russ, I'm going to stick on the Adam Smith theme a little bit. And I also know that you're a a devotee of the musical Hamilton. In fact, uh, one of the great videos that you put out back in 2010, I believe, is The Fear of the Boom of the Bust, which features a, a Keynes versus Hayek rap battle. And then Lin-Manuel Miranda stole your idea. Yep, he did, clearly. That's, I'm <laughs> winking. You can't see it, but I'm winking for the audience. I, I, I was before him. I can only say that. I think saying he stole it may be possibly uh, implying that correlation is causation when we know it's not. <laughs> but it's but but it's fun to speculate. Yeah, and actually, the the question's a little bit more serious than that. And and that is, do, what if any influence do you think Adam Smith had on Alexander Hamilton? I'm not that I'm not that educated on those questions. I know that the founders, all the founders, were aware. Of, I think were aware of Smith's work, uh, and I've I've heard it claimed often that that they that Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, which came out in 1776, had an influence on American history. I, and the founding, but I, I don't know enough about the specifics. I don't know how much of that is is true. Okay, yeah, I was just because he just seemed to write a lot of stuff on manufacturing. He was the great economic mind. But um, on that, on that though, on the Adam Smith thought, thought uh, what other, I mean, obviously, you would like to have him as a guest on Econ Talk, oh, if you yeah. can, right? But sure. what what other people from history would you like to have as guests on Econ Talk if you could if you could go back and let's limit it to people who are no longer with us? So yeah, uh, well there are a few people live who've turned me down who, to my regret or disappointment or who I can't get a hold of or uh, won't res- don't respond to me for whatever reason. But uh, having said that, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the people who've said yes and and I've learned so much from them and. It's been, a, as you know, it's an exhilarating and wonderful experience to talk to people who are smarter than I am and ask them questions that I can learn from. So it's a great, uh, a great opportunity. Obviously, I'd love to interview, if we think about economics per se, I'd love to interview Adam Smith and I'd love to interview Hayek and, uh, and even some more obscure people like Irving Fisher or Alfred Marshall, uh, Pagu, and so on. I've been blessed to interview people like Milton Friedman and, and Ronald Coase, you know, who are giants of, of and are gone now. Uh, but it, it was uh, it was wonderful to talk to them. Uh, beyond economics, there are a lot of people. Love, what, wouldn't it be fun to talk to Thomas Jefferson uh, or Alexander Hamilton or maybe even Aaron Burr? Um, so, you know, history is what's extraordinary about about being alive right now to me is that I can talk to those folks. Uh 
actually, they can talk to me. I can't talk to them so well because uh, they're gone, but their books are still with us. So I can listen to Adam Smith all day long. I can listen and read The Wealth of Nations or The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Uh, I can read so many of the great works of the past without having to go to a library, without having to order a book. Uh, they're available for free online, and uh, I can read carry them in the in my hand, in my Kindle, if I want, or on my in my laptop, in my uh, Kindle app, and it, that's just that's a dream come true. I mean, it's the amount of education that a person can get today without having to be in the elite, you know, handful of people in the past who had access to libraries and books. It's just it's just glorious. Yeah, it is. It is truly amazing, and 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 we don't even give it a second thought now, which is is in crazy. Ron and I often talk about the fact that we regret that we don't buy as many books as we used to because they're all on Kindle. But what are we, what are we going to have to pass on? Like I got, I have books from my dad, you know, that, that I really you know love to have. Well, I've gone back. I, I used to. I'm a big fan of the Kindle. Obviously, I just mentioned how nice it is when I go on a trip that I can carry hundreds of books that I can choose to read from. I can carry my library, a big chunk of my library with me. Uh, but having said that, I found myself increasingly buying real books again. Uh, and I own a fountain pen too, by the way. I have more than one. Uh, I, I really enjoy writing with a fountain pen. I don't write much. I don't have much cause to write. But when I do, I really enjoy writing with a fountain pen. I look for excuses to, to do so. And I feel that same way about you know other technologies like a book. A book is there's still something special about it. They, as much as I like the Kindle, and there are many advantages of a Kindle over uh, a printed book, there's still many advantages over a printed book relative to a Kindle. Just the ability to leaf through, the ability to go back. Yes, you can search better on the Kindle. Yes, you can bookmark on the Kindle, but it's just not the same. It'll get better. Maybe it'll come to a point where someday I don't mind that there aren't books. But right now, I love them, and I do like to look at them. And I like to wander among my bookshelves and, and see a book that I read 25 years ago and remember it and pull it down and take a look at it again. I love the fact that my kids read books that I bought just because I thought, this will be nice to have. And then someday, turns out my kid wanted to read it, which is amazing. And I don't have to go to a library. I don't have to go search for it. I don't have to download it. It's just sitting there, and we can look at it together. So I love books. I really do. Yeah, great, great stuff. <laughs> Me too. Uh, got, we've got about three minutes left, and I want to ask you this: probably, clearly, more of a more than a three minute question. That is about your great essay that you did on Medium about I can't hear you and tribalism. And of course, you did a, a, a great monologue episode, which we'll put up a, a link directly to on our show notes as well. And I'm just going to read a quick quote from it. We're talking about this tribalism that we see today in American politics. What has changed is our ability to feed and indulge our tribalism, particularly with the news and politics. The news foundability, the new foundability is the result of the transformation of the news and information landscape. It began with cable news. The Internet has taken us to a new level. And I think that you have some great insight here. But I just want to get your thoughts on one other that I was as listening to your show on that and then, of course, reading your essay is it also a contributing factor that this this lack of external existential threat that we have in the United States now? You know, for almost the entirety of the 20th century, there was an outside existential threat. First World War, Second World War, and even Cold War. And then that, that changed. And then now all of a sudden we seem to be turning on each other. And as I said, we've got about two minutes left with clearly more than a two-minute subject. Well, it's, you know, I, there is a human urge to tribalism. I think it's in our DNA. Um, it's 
a natural impulse to see people like us as on our side and people who aren't like us as being dangerous because that's most of human history. Uh, it's only recently, in the last few hundred years, maybe the few thousand years at best, that you could peacefully coexist with people who aren't like you. And I, you could argue that growing up, either within one's own lifespan or civilization, as we get through go through history, is all about not hating people uh, impulsively just because they're not like us. They're not part of our tribe. They're not part of our culture, religion, color, whatever it is. And it, But it's the case that there is a piece of us that has a natural impulse to look for people like us and to be worried about or hate even people who aren't like us. And um, we fight against that very imperfectly. And, and I worry that, as you say, when we lose, we don't have outside enemies, we look for some internal ones. And uh, I, I'd like to think that's not necessarily the case, but it certainly is true in the last few years uh, that American politics and culture has been become increasingly antagonistic and intolerant. That's the point I want to emphasize. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with disliking people you don't agree with, not disliking them, but disliking their ideas or disagreeing with the people or, or challenging people intellectually. The problem is seeing them as evil. Now, some people are, some ideas, obviously, uh, fascism, Nazism, communism, I think are potentially evil, not just like, oh, I don't agree with that. I don't, you and I don't see the world the same way. Some things are absolutely to be avoided. But as we add to the things that are in that category, which is what I think we've been doing in the last 10 years, especially the last five, we're mm-hmm. going to tear ourselves apart. We're not going to be able yeah. to have a civilized discourse. We're not going to be able to learn from each other. And we're not going to be able to get along politically. And uh, I don't see that turning out very well. No, not at all. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic, but unfortunately, we're up against the end of our show. Russ, I want to thank you for being a guest on The Soul of Enterprise. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? We have retired Colonel Chris Strickland coming back, the former Thunderbird with now Afterburner to talk more about After Action Reviews. All right, great, Ron. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, Friday at 4 p.m. when we'll have retired Colonel Chris Strickland on with us again. In the meantime, check out our show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post uh, full links to all of Russ Roberts' books and other information about him. Also, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe.com at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. 